So, Tom, where does it all begin? Okay, it's 1783, and Paris is gripped by the prospect of a chess match. And one of the contestants in this chess match is François-André Philidor, who is considered the greatest chess player, certainly in Paris, probably in Europe, and probably in the whole world. And his party piece is playing against two opponents at the same time while blindfolded. So he has to remember where everything is on both chessboards. And there's even a chess move named after him called the Philidor Sacrifice. So essentially, he's Mr. Chess. And the reason everyone's so excited in this particular summer is that he's about to go head-to-head with the other big sensation in the chess world at the time. But his opponent isn't a man, and it's not a woman either. It's a machine. So this sounds a lot like when Garry Kasparov took on Deep Blue, the IBM chess-playing supercomputer, but that was only a couple of decades ago. And this chess match in Paris is happening more than 200 years ago. It doesn't seem like that would have been possible back in the 1780s. Well, not a lot of people have heard of this strange story. It turns out to be one of those curious tales from history that can help us understand technology today and where it might go tomorrow which is what we're doing with this show, digging out these old stories to see what we can learn from them. We're going to look at the first cyber attack, which happened in the 1830s. We'll find out how the Victorians invented virtual reality. But let's start here with the story of this intelligent machine that amazed everybody back in the 18th century. And when it comes to artificial intelligence, the hottest topic in technology today, basically, you might think that the debate about whether machines can think and play chess and whether they're really intelligent or not is something that starts in the 1940s with people like Alan Turing and the first computers. But it turns out that the arguments about AI go back much further than you think. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. And from Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. So back to this chess-playing machine that's taking on Mr. Philidor. Uh, Tom, I know that you've written a book about this. You know more than anybody in the world about this. But there's maybe one other guy who knows almost as much as you. His name is John Gaughan. He's in Los Angeles. He's actually built a perfect replica of the machine that played Mr. Philidor. So I called him up and said, can I stop by your studio? He was remarkably blessed. He was like, yeah, just come by anytime. So showed up, uh, came in, and he walked me through the front, which has these, like, table saws and carpentry stuff, and into this back room. Well, come on back here. Then you go into this quiet, carpeted room with this clock ticking on the wall and these glass cabinets full of bizarre little creatures and contraptions and things that he's designed or antiquities that he's collected over the years. And everywhere you look, it's packed to the gills. Everywhere you look is some strange thing that clearly has a long story behind it. And he can tell you the story of each of them. And we have over here, this is 1875, and she would draw things like this. And she's just, she's another automaton. Yes. And this is a talking skull. It's only able to answer questions, yes, no. uh, But there's one story in particular that we're there for, which is about the origins of this chess-playing machine. Well, as the story goes, as they say, in 1769 in Vienna, in the court of Maria Theresa, 
Von Kemplin uh, was an employee. Actually, he was an engineer that did all sorts of things, uh, waterworks and, and odds and ends. Wolfgang von Kempelen was a Hungarian civil servant. He worked in the court of Austria-Hungary. So he was quite often invited to witness the performances that were put on by visiting scientists from other countries. And they would do chemical explosions and move things around on tables with magnets and so on. And he was there one time when a fellow had little puzzles all done by magnets. And it really entertained the people around Maria Theresa and he was kind of scoffing at the, they were just simple things. Kempelen was sort of very unimpressed by this and made the fact that he was unimpressed clear to Maria Theresa. So she challenged him to make something that was bigger and better than that. Sure enough, he took up the challenge, and about six months later, this is what he came up with. At the time, if you wanted to make your name as an engineer in the courts of Europe, the best way to do it was to build a clockwork toy, an automaton. And these would be sort of clockwork animals or people or whatever. And you'd wind them up and they would do a thing like play a tune or write a word. But it would always be exactly the same thing. But Kempelen's automaton was different. This was the Mechanical Turk, a clockwork chess-playing machine. What was amazing about the Mechanical Turk was that it was responding to its surroundings. It could change what it did. We'd say it was interactive. It was a machine that could think. You crank it up and, and set it going, and uh, it, will, it will beat anyone playing chess. So John's replica of the Turk is at the heart of the room, and it's this big cabinet. And sitting behind the cabinet, there's this carved wooden man. He's life-size, or maybe even a little bit bigger than life-size. He's dressed in these elaborate old clothes, this fur-trimmed vest, and he's wearing a turban. There's a feather sticking out of the top of it. And these carved wooden eyes that are staring holes through you. He has a very serious uh, expression on his face, quite stern. He has clothes that are kind of regal, fur-trimmed, jacket and the like. So that's the traditional costume of a Turkish conjurer. And this seems to be because at the time it was assumed that chess had been invented in Turkey. Uh, but actually it looks as though chess was invented in India and just came into Europe through Turkey. So this big wooden Turk, he's sitting behind a cabinet filled with clockwork machinery. And he has his left hand on top of the cabinet next to a large chessboard. And it's his left arm, in fact, that's the mechanical arm that can move around and pick up the chess pieces. And so this hand is capable of grabbing the chess piece, lifting it up, moving it to another square, and putting it down and releasing it? Yes, you can see the four fingers here are hinged right there, and their thumb is articulated. And so it will grab the piece like that and pinch it. Of course, the, the Turk gets the first move. I wind it up, and if he's all oiled up and everything, he picks up the first piece and moves it. Uh, so let me. No, it's uh, it still needs a lot of adju adjustments. And how did people r respond when they when they saw it? It was a sensation. Uh, no one could believe it. 
So, Tom, this machine is suddenly making this absolutely incredible technological leap of being able to play chess, and not only that, but even beat humans at chess. It seems like their minds would have been completely blown. Uh, some people seem to have worried that this was uh, using black magic or something like that. But I think we have to remember that at the time, uh, the Montgolfier brothers had taken to the air in their first balloons. This is the 1780s. And um, people thought that flight, you know, flying machines with people on them, that was something that was impossible. But there'd also been this strange year without summer uh, because we now know a volcano has gone off in Iceland. As far as the people in Western Europe are concerned, they just see these weird clouds. The sun's gone red like blood, which looks really ominous. And so a lot of strange things were happening around the time that the Turk arrives in Paris. And um, at that period in particular, I think people could be forgiven for thinking that things that they thought were impossible in the past might in fact be possible. It's kind of like now, I mean, new technologies are coming out every day and we just say, oh, sure, of course, we can just like talk to this box on our kitchen counter and have it get, tell us what year any movie was made or play any song we wanted to. I think technology is like that, isn't it? The first time you see a voice assistant or a self-driving car, you go, wow, that's amazing. And then the next time you see it, you go, oh, yeah, I've seen that. That's pretty cool. I'd like one of those. And it just goes from being amazing and magical to completely mundane extremely quickly. If you went back in time just 10 years and said, look, I've got this thing that goes in my pocket and you speak French into it and it translates it or, or you can summon a vehicle to take you anywhere. I mean, it seems like magic. It can beat the world chess champion at chess. It can also do that. Um, did anyone have any suspicions at the time there was anything but an automaton? Oh, no, everyone had suspicions. The Turk becomes famous throughout Europe very quickly, so everybody wanted to see it, and they wanted to try and work out how it worked. So Kemplin was constantly being asked to get it out and set it up again so that people who were visiting the court of Maria Theresa could see it. And uh, he got rather fed up with this, so he took it to bits and pretended it was broken. And that seemed to be the end of it, but then Maria Theresa died, and her son ordered Kemplin to reassemble the Turk and take it on a two-year tour of Europe, essentially to demonstrate the awesomeness of Austro-Hungarian engineering. And this is how he ends up in Paris playing against Philidor. On this particular night, it's not just Philidor who's the opposition for the Turk, as far as Kempelin's concerned, because in the audience are the finest scientists in France. And it was at the restaurant in Paris where all the chess aficionados of the day hung out. So it was a big deal to have him there. They are there because they are determined that they are going to figure out how the Turk works because no one had been able to do it up to that point, and they thought, we, the, the great scientists of France, will be able to work it out. So finally, Philidor and the Turk come together, and they play this showdown match. He's very unnerved about playing against the machine. He's got absolutely no feedback. Instead, there's just this wooden carved Turk. Philidor said afterwards he found it the most exhausting game of chess he'd ever played and that no human opponent had ever sort of put him under so much pressure. And it must have been terrifying. You've just got this machine staring at you with its, with its frightening eyes. Anyway, Philidor did win, but it took everything he had to beat this terrifying machine. 
That said, the match was still, in a sense, a victory for Templin and a victory for the Turk because it was a sort of masterstroke of publicity to even get to play against the best player in the world. And the second thing was that even though the Turk didn't beat Philidor on the chessboard, the Turk did manage to beat the assembled scientists of Paris because when they were asked afterwards how they thought it worked, they had to admit that they were just as baffled as everybody else. So, Tom, the Turk baffled those scientists in Paris, and throughout the Turk's life, nobody actually figures it out. How did they think it worked? Well, there were lots of possible theories. One of them was that magnets knew and exciting. Who knew what they could do? Maybe they could help machines think. There was another theory that Kempelen himself was operating the Turk remotely using, I don't know, very, very thin wires. Maybe he had a whole load of buttons along the back of the cabinet, but he was sort of pushing buttons and telling it what to do. That was another theory. Then there was the theory that there was a monkey inside. And this seems to have been because the Sultan of Baghdad was supposed to have a chess-playing monkey. So maybe there was more than one, or maybe he'd sold it to Kempelen and it was inside the machine somehow and making it play chess. Well, frankly, these all sound plausible to me. I like the monkey one the best. But tell us all, what's the answer? Well, it's a trick. There was, in fact, a man inside the machine, and not just a little person or someone with no legs or a child or a monkey. It was a full-sized adult chess player. And essentially, this is recognised today as a sort of early magic trick, something called a cabinet illusion. And that's why John Gorn, who's an ingenious craftsman who makes props for stage magicians today, has long taken such an interest in it. You know, my business is such as is hiding people in things for the magicians. So I've stuffed people in all sorts of things over the years. All of the clockwork inside the Turk was fake. There was a very, very clever mechanical arm that actually moved the pieces. And there was a system of magnets, which meant that the person inside the Turk could see what was going on and what their opponent was doing. So it was a brilliant piece of engineering, just not in the way it claimed to be, because obviously it wasn't actually thinking. And so are we allowed to acknowledge that there there's a person, a human being inside this who Well, actually... that's certainly uh, the one of the strong theories of how it worked, but... Uh... Okay. <laughs> um, now, if there were a person, a human being inside this contraption, there's not a ton of room. What would conditions be like for someone who was trying to hide inside this box? You can imagine without any air conditioning and without any lighting or anything, no electric fans what it must have been like. It would be very hard to stay awake and you would perspire a lot. It would have been really unpleasant to be the operator inside the Turk. It was so cramped. It was dark, obviously, before they had any electric lighting, so there had to be a candle in there. And that meant it would have been very hot, very cramped and very smoky. And what a horrible job to be a person being treated like a machine. You have to act in this machine-like way while you're cooped up in there. And that's something that people were starting to become very concerned about at the time of the Turk. It's the beginnings of industrialization. There's this whole question of, you know, will the machines displace us? Will we end up as human cogs inside a, a giant mechanism? And of course, today, things are not so different. With every advance in artificial intelligence, there's a flurry of reports about how humans are on the verge of being displaced and we might all lose our jobs. And the Turk appeared to be intelligent, but only because there was a human inside the machine. 
And today, in the middle of another technological revolution, we're actually doing something very similar. We are, in effect, putting people inside today's machines as we build our own forms of artificial intelligence. So the technique that underpins modern artificial intelligence is this thing called deep learning. You feed a whole bunch of correct answers into a computer, and after a while, it can start to figure out the right answer by itself. So you give it millions of pictures of cats and say for each one, this is a cat. Millions of pictures of dogs and say for each one, this is a dog. And over time, the computer learns to do it on its own. The thing about that is the computer at the beginning can't really figure out what a cat or a dog is on its own. It needs a human to say, this is a cat. It needs a human to say, this is a dog. And the easiest way to get hold of humans to make those labelled examples for you so you can train your system is just to go out and recruit crowds of people on the internet. And there are various crowd working platforms out there where you can pay people to do this kind of work for you. But it's no coincidence that the biggest one of all is called Mechanical Turk. We train AI all of the time, we are training our replacements, for, for lack of a better term. This is Christy Milland. She's been an Amazon Mechanical Turk worker for the past 12 years. She's also a researcher and an advocate for other crowd workers. We have trained drones, um, automatically driven cars, cars that drive themselves. We train them. Um, a million things. We know as we do it, we say, ah, we're training a robot or we're training an algorithm. And there's another way that humans are powering AIs behind the scenes. They're not only applying labels like cat or dog to images to train algorithms. Sometimes people are doing the actual work, even if it looks from the outside like it's being done by an AI. We, we do so many things. All of the apps where you submit a receipt, um, we transcribe those receipts. LinkedIn's business card app that allowed you to have your business cards transcribed was us until a few years ago. So all of these things online, even today, are often backed up by humans. We're totally integrated into a system that almost everyone believes is automatic. Some big tech companies even have their own private crowds of people to do this kind of work for them. Every single company from Google to LinkedIn to Dropbox to even Amazon has crowds that you, you don't get to just join. And so I don't even know the extent of what is AI and what isn't. So it's a trick. It's an illusion of the kind that John Gorn would recognise. That's what we do every day is give uh, power to the magician so the audience thinks that he is actually causing these things to work. When It's really clever misdirection. I absolutely believe that there is deception going on. For example, Expensify had a big scandal that their receipts were not being completed by AI, but instead were being sent to Amazon Mechanical Turk. We were seeing people's credit card numbers. We were seeing their home address. And this is hugely problematic. And customers are the ones who need to be questioning this and asking, is it really AI? Are you using Mechanical Turk? Do you have your own internal group? Is my data protected and private? 
The thing about Amazon Mechanical Turk and other sorts of crowd-working jobs is that they offer opportunities to people who might not be able to find other kinds of work. So that can be a godsend for people who are disabled or caregivers or who live in rural areas where there aren't many jobs. The problem is that the bulk of that work is garbage. The average Amazon Mechanical Turk worker earns $2 US per hour. Much of the work is questionable. For example, content moderation. People are sending videos and photographs of things that one cannot unsee. And you're looking at hundreds or thousands of those. So this work ends up being full-time or long-term work for people who are truly desperate, people who can't work elsewhere. And that's problematic because these are the people who need help the most and who, for whom this damage can be the most destructive. And just as the Turks operators had to work in rather unpleasant conditions, there are concerns today that crowd workers are also being exploited. Critics say it's dehumanizing to force people to act like machines in this way. For example, there is a chatbot system. And in that chatbot system, the instructions say very clearly, do not say I, do not say I'm a person, do not mention Mechanical Turk. And the reason is they don't want the person on the other end to believe they're chatting with a human. They want them to believe they're chatting with AI. It's a very automated process, very robotic. And then everything we're doing is writing scripts and code. So yeah, in automating your work, you often are automating your identity. So you start to feel like a robot. We are that little chess playing man in the box. We are hidden and yet we're doing extraordinary feats that a computer shouldn't be able to do. And in reality, the computer isn't able to do. On the face of it, the work that those mechanical Turkers are doing seems exactly like the kind of thing you want automated, right? It's unpleasant, it's repetitive, and so why not have a machine do it? And now we pretend that it's automated, but in fact it's being done by people, and those people have to act like the machine, and it really doesn't seem like the kind of work that most people would choose to do if they had a choice. No, I sometimes have to do you know, tasks where you have to go through a spreadsheet and, you know, change something and you have to do basically the same thing hundreds and hundreds of times. It's really, really boring. At least I don't have to pretend to be a machine while I'm doing it, though. We all know what doing that kind of repetitive work is like, and very few of us enjoy spending our time that way. But what if it turned out we were all doing this all the time without even realizing it? This was, this was a while ago. This was in the year 2000. I was a first-year PhD student uh, here at Carnegie Mellon University. This is Luis Fanon. He's the founder of Duolingo, the language learning app. But long before he invented that, he invented CAPTCHA. Yahoo offered a free email service, and they had the problem that a lot of people were writing computer programs to obtain millions of free email accounts. And they needed to stop that. Uh, because every time that they gave a free email account, they had to allocate some resources for this email account. And also, uh, these email accounts were being used uh, by spammers. Luis invented CAPTCHA to solve that problem. You've probably used something like CAPTCHA before. That's where you see those squiggly letters and numbers, and it's a little bit hard to read them. And then you have to type into a box what they say in order to prove to the computer that you're not a robot. CAPTCHA stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to tell computers and humans apart. Uh, at first, you know, it was just this security mechanism, and a lot of websites started using CAPTCHAs. Uh, a few years later, 
I did a little back of the envelope calculation about how many CAPTCHAs were being typed by people around the world. And the number I came up with was about 200 million a day. So that's about 8 million CAPTCHAs an hour. And each one takes about 10 seconds for the person to do. And at some point, Luis realized that that's a lot of people doing a lot of work. And at first, I was pretty proud of this. I, I, I thought, look at the impact that my work has had. Um, but then I started feeling bad because if you multiply 10 seconds by 200 million, you get that humanity as a whole was wasting 500,000 hours every day on this. So I tried to figure out what can people do with that time? Because during those 10 seconds while you're, while you're typing a capture, your brain is doing something amazing. It's doing something that computers cannot yet do. So he comes up with a twist, which is called reCAPTCHA. And it's a way to not only prove to the computer that you're human, but also accomplish something worthwhile along the way, which is next to the little squiggly letters and numbers that you've got to decipher, he puts a digitized picture from a book. Uh, at the time, there were a lot of projects trying to digitize all the world's books. But for many of the books, uh, the computer could not recognize the words because either the pages were, were too yellow or, or the scan was not very good. But humans could always recognize these. So what we started doing is we started taking these words that the computer could not recognize and giving them to people as captures on the internet. Did people realize when they were solving captures that they were also accomplishing something else? Um, we didn't try to hide it. I mean, there was, you know, uh, I, I gave a TED talk that was watched by, you know, millions of people and, you know, how this is helping to digitize books. But my guess is that if you ask people, probably 90% of them had no idea what was going on. They just thought, uh, it's this security thing, I don't even know why I have to type it. I'm just typing it. So all those times that we were aimlessly typing in words to prove we were human, there was a purpose after all. Without realizing it, we were the people inside the machine giving it human intelligence, just like the operator inside the Mechanical Turk. Yes, and it's not just decoding old books. These days, if you see a capture, you're just as likely to be shown a street scene and asked to label which parts of it are road signs and which parts are vehicles and so on. And this is to create training data that's used to help self-driving cars understand the world better. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? So there's all sorts of other useful information that we're sharing with these big tech companies all the time. It's absolutely nonstop. Whenever you Google something or tag a photo on Instagram or post something on Facebook or ask your smart speaker, who I won't mention by name, a question, or if you're just walking around with your smartphone, pretty much anything you do online, you're not just giving big companies more data that they can use to target ads. People know about that. What you're really doing is giving them data that can be used to train AIs and improve those services and make them seem smarter. So we've all become the people working inside the machine. The internet is a giant mechanical Turk. Okay, but... but maybe that's kind of okay that I'm working inside the giant mechanical Turk because I'm getting these pretty good free services out of it, right? I mean, Google saves every document that I've ever created, every email I've ever sent. It sends me notifications on my calendar when I have a meeting. I mean, these are like pretty good services I'm not paying for. And if, and if the way that I'm paying for them is by sort of effortlessly sharing my data, well, I have some privacy concerns. But on the other hand... Mm, I don't know, not so bad. <laughs> so you like the deal. I mean, this is essentially the deal that the internet has operated on, you know, for the last 10 years, which is we get free services as long as we hand over personal data that can be used to, to target ads at us. So that's been the deal. But people have started to say, hang on a second, we're giving them more and more information. Maybe actually the value of the information we're giving them is 
greater than the value of the services we're getting back in return. And as a result, they kind of owe us. So isn't it time they started paying us? And that's what some people are starting to say, people like Jaron Lanier. If you pull back the curtain of an AI, there's millions of people who provided the data for that AI to work. There's no angels or supernatural aliens or something who are providing the data that goes into our machines. Um, it all, Every bit always comes from the effort of some person somewhere. Best known as a pioneer of virtual reality, Jaron is now one of the leading proponents of the concept of data as labor. There's something screwy going on here, which I hope you can see immediately, which is they're saying, our AIs are going to put you out of work, but we need to steal your data in order to make that happen. So the thing is, if we could reconsider this, perhaps a better idea than putting everybody on basic income would be to simply pay them for the value of their data. They should be considered as personal property that a person should be able to sell and set their own price on. Well, that all sounds great, but if you crunch the numbers today, well, it's not so impressive. If you take the amount of profit that Facebook, say, makes in a year and divide it between its 2 billion or so users, we all get about $9 a year, which is, you know, not terribly impressive. No, it's not a life-changing amount. $9 a year isn't going to pay a lot of my bills. But um, Jaron Lanier and other people who are big fans of the idea of data as labor say it's, you know, it's early days, the data economy will expand, there'll be a kind of bigger pot, and therefore... For some people, at least, being a modern-day human within the machine would be a a good thing and will be how more people earn their living in future. Personally, I'm not 100% convinced that this is all going to work out, so we'll, we'll see what happens. So, Tom, we, we talked about the mechanical Turk of the 1780s, which was actually a trick. We talked about the modern AI, which is actually a trick. There's humans behind both of these things. There's a human in the box. Will we ever have a real AI where there's no trick involved? Well, I think intelligent systems are probably going to be hybrids of machines and people for quite a long time in some form or another. But also, I think trying to divorce technology and intelligence from trickery is very difficult because the the main test we have for whether a machine is intelligent or not, the Turing test, is whether it can trick someone into thinking it's a human. So our definition of intelligence actually depends on ability to trick. So I think the idea that we can divorce intelligence and trickery is a bit of a tall order. And I would make a, a case, actually, that trickery is sort of is a good thing in praise of trickery. So the Turk was a trick, yes, but it encouraged people to try things that they otherwise wouldn't have done. There's someone called Edmund Cartwright, and he's a an inventor in London. He knew that lots of people had been trying to build weaving machines. And then he hears that there's this machine going around Europe that can play chess. And he goes, well, if you build a machine to do that, weaving must be much easier than I thought it was. It so expands he, the horizon of what's right, possible. So he, so he has another go, and he builds this machine, and he succeeds. And that's you know, one of the sorts of machines that uh, leads to the Industrial Revolution. And we see that exactly the same with modern AI. So there's a whole generation of computer scientists and inventors and entrepreneurs who grew up with films like 2001, with things like Star Trek. So if you look at Jeff Bezos, the reason that Jeff Bezos has got Amazon engineers building smart speakers that can talk is that he's a massive Star Trek fan. And obviously, the Star Trek computer is this computer you can talk to. And he knew it was a trick. He knew it was just a science fiction series. And there's just somebody answering for the computer. But it got him thinking, well, what would it take to build a computer that worked like that? Um, So I think this sort of fake it till you make it approach can be actually quite inspirational. You get people to try and build things that, you know, that to make the magic real. There you go. 
I guess I don't really care if it's a trick or if it's real. I mean, I'm the end user. I just want it to happen. I just want it to feel like magic, I guess. And if there's actually human labor behind it, it doesn't bother me unless that labor is being exploited. Yeah, exactly. I think as long as the machine is doing something useful that you want it to do, exactly how it accomplishes that is kind of not the point. What the Turk does, going way back to the 1770s, 1780s, is it shows us that technology and trickery and intelligence and illusion are all terribly, terribly tangled up. And we can try and unpick them today. And we've just tried to unpick them, but they're just inherently, inextricably linked. So, Tom, there is one more thread that we need to tie up here, which is what happened to the original Turk. So he, he plays this uh, big chess match in 1783, and then where does he go from there? Well, after many more adventures and many more travels, the Turk ends up in a museum in Philadelphia, and it's destroyed when the museum burns down in 1854. What an ignominious end for the Turk. Well, fortunately, there was nobody stuck inside it at the time, but you could say its, it's spirit lives on. Obviously, John Gorn has built this immaculate reconstruction of the Turk, and as we've discussed, we've also built this much bigger version of it, if you like, which we all work inside every day because the Turk is sort of the animating spirit of the internet. It was a clever trick then, and it's a clever trick now. When we uh, demonstrate it, it still fools people, just like back 250 years ago. So that's very rewarding. I'm Tom Standage. And I'm Seth Stevenson. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. Editorial assistance was provided by Gabriel Roth. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The executive producers are Steve Lichtai for Slate Podcasts and Anne McElvoy for The Economist. Next time on The Secret History of the Future... What links an electric eel to brain augmentation and the future of humanity? I think to some extent people have always looked at electricity and thought of this as as a kind of a power that could be harnessed in some way or other. Until relatively recently, we probably didn't have the sense of using it for enhancement that we now have. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on The Secret History of the Future.